How was your Father's Day? I hear Mick Mulvaney got some Ricola. The lead starts right now. Cue the golden escalator. President Trump set to kick off his 2020 campaign as a new report warns his own national security aides are afraid to tell him about fighting back against the Russians in cyberspace. Coming to a boil, Iran now threatening to violate the nuclear deal that President Trump began to unravel last year. How close to the brink of confrontation is the United States with Iran? Plus, the latest Trump cabinet secretary accused of a conflict of interest, and she also happens to be the wife of Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin with the politics lead as President Trump prepares to kick off his 2020 campaign launch with a rally tomorrow in Orlando, Florida. His campaign is simultaneously making some major personnel changes as a nod to the president's difficulty hearing negative news about himself. The president's reelection efforts have been overshadowed in recent days by some bad internal poll numbers for the president and a cascade of lies about those bad numbers. President Trump again today warning his followers on Twitter not to believe any, quote, fake polls showing him trailing any of the Democrats. But the president's definition of fake polls apparently means polls he does not like. Sources tell CNN the president's been angry for days over the leaking of internal polling data from March showing the president trailing Joe Biden in hypothetical matchups in key battleground states. The New York Times first reported the existence of these ugly numbers, followed by CNN, which was then followed by this lie. There were fake polls that were released by uh, somebody that is, it's ridiculous. No, we are winning in every single state that we've polled. That is not true. And after various news media obtained the information from the actual internal polling data, the Trump campaign eventually admitted that the polling existed, though they called it old and out of context. Yesterday, CNN learned three pollsters attached to the Trump campaign were being fired. Now, it's unclear if any of those being let go had anything to do with the leaking of the data. One person familiar with the situation says the firings are less about the polls and more about pacifying the president. This is a theme we've seen throughout the Trump presidency. Officials unsure of how to deal with a mercurial boss untethered to facts. And now the New York Times is even reporting the top intelligence and military officials were so worried about the president's reaction to the U.S. government escalating U.S. cyber attacks against Russia, concerned that the president might countermand the operation or disclose it to foreign leaders. They hesitated to even tell the president about it in detail, even though he is, you know, the commander in chief. CNN's Caitlin Collins digs into the way staffers are trying to contain and work around President Trump. You're fired. Today, President Trump is reviving his old catchphrase and purging his polling team after unflattering internal poll numbers leaked. But even your own polls show you're behind right now, don't they? No. My polls show that I'm winning everywhere. The president is cutting ties with three pollsters, including two who were part of his 2016 campaign and another who works for the polling company founded by Kellyanne Conway. The campaign downplayed the polls at the time, but never denied them until Trump was infuriated by the coverage. Nobody showed you those polls because those polls don't exist yet. Hold it off for a little while. Just call Brad on the phone. And I want to ask him that question, okay? The Brad he's referring to is campaign manager Brad Parscale. Sources said the president erupted on several campaign officials after the embarrassing numbers leaked and instructed them to get him new polls. His fixation ramping up in recent days as he tweeted that only the fake polls show us behind the Motley crew. 
The president is also firing back at the New York Times after it reported that the U.S. is escalating cyber attacks on Russian power grids as part warning and part preparation. But one of the most stunning details is what the president wasn't told. According to the Times, defense and intelligence officials were hesitant to go into detail with him about the move out of fear he might overrule it or tell foreign officials, like he did in 2017 when Trump boasted about classified intelligence in an Oval Office meeting with Russian diplomats. It's a fantastic One thing not allowed in the Oval Office, coughing. Fantastic. Let's do that over. He's coughing in the middle of my answer. Yeah, okay. I don't like that. Trump interrupting his interview with ABC News to scold his chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, for coughing while he was speaking. Your chief of staff. If you're going to cough, please leave the room. Get a shot of, and I'll, I'll come over here. Just, just can't, you just can't. Just to change the shot. Okay. Sorry, Mr. Trump. Okay, do you want to do that a little differently then? Now, Jake, back to those poll numbers. The president and has become so fixated on, on them in recent days that people familiar with the campaign say that they are lamenting the fact that they seem to be more focused on containing the leaks than focusing on the president's bad poll numbers in key states. That's something they're hoping to change when the president goes to Orlando, Florida tomorrow night to officially relaunch his election bid. All right, Caitlin Collins at the White House. Thanks so much. Uh, let's chew over all this with our experts. And we have a treat today. We have conservative columnist George Will. Uh, joining us. He's out with a brand new book called The Conservative Sensibility. Thanks so much for being here, George. Congratulations on the book. It's a great read. Recommended highly. Um, let's talk about the president in this situation here where uh, national security advisors are afraid to tell him about this cyber attack that they're doing against Russia, where pollsters are being let go because of this negative information. What do you make of it all? Well, th this is the modern presidency when it's occupied by someone who's never occupied any public office at any level before, which is to say, when you treat the presidency as an entry-level office, this is what you get. Someone who, let's assume he means well, that may be rash, but <laughs> is, is someone who simply is un, not conversant with the rules of the road, with the common manners of public life, and it's chaos. And it, presumably, Sarah, that these, this data was leaked, I, I would think, uh, by somebody on the campaign or whatever who is concerned, mm -hmm. who wants President Trump to be reelected and who is trying to convey to him, hey, you're in trouble. Right. Presumably it's someone saying you need to take this seriously, you know, this whole business of running for re-election rather than this business of firing pollsters who aren't actually the ones who control the poll numbers. Those would be the people who are responding to the polls. But, you know, he has been obsessed with his standing in the polls since he first got into the race back in 2015. I don't think it should be a surprise to anyone that that has changed, but I have to imagine it is alarming for the people who is on, are on his re-election team that he's not taking it seriously. You know, his favorability numbers, his polling numbers, the fact that he's lagging in some of these Midwestern states that were so important to his victory in 2016. That should be the takeaway from this, not coming up with 15 different excuses as to why we should just dis dismiss all of these polls and why they might have been wrong. And it's, it's classic Trump, though, that these individuals, these pollsters would be fired on, on the way to his campaign kickoff when the issue isn't their work or even the leaking, the issue for everybody who supports the president is you're in trouble. Right, as opposed to um, taking responsibility and saying, oh, there may be some alarms going off right now. We're going to address this in the campaign launch. We're going to be playing aggressively in these key states. Instead, Trump decides to fire um, people who he thinks uh, provide a scapegoat for him. Um, and also this 
helps Biden. I mean, the fact that Biden looks as though he's way ahead of Trump in Pennsylvania in these states that uh, Clinton lost, this only helps uh, his entire uh primary race that he's running against the Democrats. And sources tell CNN, uh, Paul, that the president's been angry for days about these leaked internal poll numbers showing him losing uh, to, to Joe Biden in key states. He's telling his Twitter followers not to believe them. But this is a familiar strategy. Take a listen to the president in 2018. Just stick with us. Don't believe the crap you see from these people, the fake news. Just remember what you're seeing and what you're reading is not what's happening. What you're seeing and what you're reading is not what's happening. Well, that's that's the first goal of an autocrat is to d- destroy truth. So, so you're what, it's straight out of 1984, literally, right? Two, two plus two equals five. Um, and so I think that's that's probably the more important goal he's got here is to try to tell at least his supporters not to believe facts. And, and I did come across, though, in terms of polling and his predictive capacity this far out is a, a terrible polls for the president trailing in, get this, trailing in Colorado, Florida, Iowa, Michigan, Nevada, New Hampshire, New Mexico, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Wisconsin. That was Barack Obama 11 months before his comfortable re-election. By the way, Obama carried 11 of those 12 swing states where he was trailing both Mitt Romney and Newt Gingrich only 11 months before the election. So Democrats need to avoid irrational exuberance here. These polls, they're useful in some ways, but they're absolutely useless in terms of predicting what the outcome is going to be. George, I want to ask you also, um, regardless of one's feeling about the conspiracy of the deep state, the idea that there would be national security officials reluctant to go into details about a, a cyber attack on Russia that the United States is doing because they're worried that he might say call it off or they're worried that he might leak it to the Russians or whatever their fears are to tell some foreign leaders about it. I mean, frankly, it's not their job to do that. He's the commander in chief. I, I get that people don't trust him and they feel like he's uh, irrational, uh, presumably. But like they they, they don't he, they weren't elected. He was he was elected. But their job also, and they've sworn an oath to this, is to defend the country and the Constitution. And they have two examples. They have the example of him in Helsinki, where he stood in public next to Putin and sided with Putin against his own intelligence community and the meeting with Lavrov and someone else, I guess the Russian ambassador to the United States, yeah. in the Oval Office where he carelessly, not, yeah. Yeah, not maliciously, but carelessly revealed an, a, uh, an important intelligence secret about uh, an operation in Syria. Do you remember when Scaramucci said when, during the 10 days that he was the communications director <laughs> that there are people in the administration who think it's their job to protect the United States from Donald Trump? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> remember First that? of all, that was such a blissful time, remember, Anthony? <laughs> that was innocent 10 days. And how much fun that was. But yeah, I think there are people that are not just in this. I mean, there are people across government who I think feel that that is their duty right now under President Trump. And, you know, not necessarily because they're not even of the same party as he is, but just as you were talking about, these are career public servants who just feel like he can't be trusted or doesn't understand the gravity of the situation we're in. I mean, that said, the American people elected him. And if this gives them so much pause, then elect someone else in 2020. All right, everyone stick around. We have a lot more to talk about tensions escalating with Iran. First, they announced an increase in uranium enrichment. Now one of its ambassadors with a scary prediction. That's next. Then he was just four months old when he was separated from his father at the U.S.-Mexico border. The heartbreaking story of Constantine. In our money lead, House Democrats are considering opening an investigation into Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao. New questions are being raised about whether she used her office at the Department of Transportation to in any way help her family's business, a shipping company. She also happens to be Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's wife. CNN's Drew Griffin's digging into what experts say is a clear-cut ethics violation. 
Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao is the Trump administration's top official overseeing shipping in the United States, which is exactly the industry that has helped make Elaine Chao rich. Her family's company, built by her parents, both Chinese immigrants, and now run by her sister Angela, is a global leader in dry bulk shipping and does major business in China, which is why Chao's use of her office to put her family and its business on display is raising more than a few eyebrows. She has attempted to use, and she has used, government office to help her father and his business. In 2017, Elaine Chao used the Department of Transportation as a backdrop for multiple interviews with Chinese and Chinese-language media, like this one, her father at her side. guest and showing off the lapel pin he received flying on Air Force One. Well, my father and I traveled on Air Force One. That's always an experience. And I was so pleased that I was able to bring my father on Air Force One with the president. president spent about seven minutes with me. The Chow family company, called the Foremost Group, is based in the U.S., but the company builds ships in China, hires workers in China, does much of its shipping to and from China. Elaine Chow's sister, Angela, sits on the board of the state-run Bank of China. And even though there is no evidence Elaine Chow used her office to influence government policy to benefit her family's business, she has repeatedly traveled to China for major company events. Several Chinese government and business experts tell CNN her relationship to her family sends a message, intended or not. Chinese expert Robert Lawrence Kuhn says though there has been a recent crackdown on corruption in China, personal relationships remain very important. To understand the relationship between business and government in China is a story of um, Chinese culture going back for a long period of time and indeed in, 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 in recent times as well. And the perception is that if you're seen in the company of powerful people or relatives of powerful people within China, that is good for your business relationships. A spokesman for Elaine Chao is quick to point out the transportation secretary has no official connection to the Foremost Group, but the Foremost Group has certainly helped make her rich. Chow and her husband, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, received between five and $25 million in gifts from Chow's parents, according to 2008 Senate financial disclosures, catapulting McConnell to becoming one of the richest members in the Senate. Elaine Chow's extended family has donated more than a million dollars to McConnell's political pursuits. And Elaine Chow could inherit even more wealth as foremost shipping continues to flourish. Making scenes like this all the more troubling according to law professor and government ethics expert Kathleen Clark. Clark says regardless of the perception in China, this use of office violates U.S. government ethics rules, specifically this one, on endorsing organizations, products, or persons. Executive branch employees may not use their government positions to suggest that the agency or any part of the executive branch endorses organizations, products, or people. It's a clear-cut violation. If Secretary Chow did not violate that regulation under these circumstances, then the regulation means nothing. Then any government official will be able to, you know, endorse any kind of outside enterprise associated with a family member. In or out of public office, visit after visit, it is Elaine Chow who appears to be the foremost group's most important unofficial representative in China. She has accompanied her father or sister to more than a dozen events there, often meeting top Chinese officials. In 2008, when she served as labor secretary, Chow brought her father on an official visit to meet the Chinese premier. 
In 2015, she is sitting prominently with a party leader and introduced as the former U.S. Labor Secretary. According to a Chinese report, the meeting was to promote mutually beneficial cooperation between Foremost Group and Hubei Province. A new watchdog group headed by Democrats is now suing the Department of Transportation for any agency documents that mention the Chow family business. Several House Democrats say they are concerned about Chow's use of her office. But for now, the Department of Transportation is calling the attacks political, an attempt to fabricate a web of old, tired innuendos and baseless inferences, reflecting a lack of understanding of the department's responsibilities while demonstrating deep cultural misunderstandings. Chow, the spokesman says, has done nothing wrong. And Jake, when asked if the Chinese could interpret Elaine Chow's behavior as an endorsement of her family's business, the spokesperson says, we don't speculate on who interprets what in China, and then went on to call some of this media attention racist, stating that if her last name was Smith, none of this would raise a question. Jake? Drew Griffin, thanks so much. Coming up, why Mayor Pete Buttigieg is off the 2020 campaign trail today and back in South Bend, Indiana. with our 2020 lead, South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg is off the presidential campaign trail today, canceling his events so he could go home to South Bend to deal with a police-involved shooting. Buttigieg meeting with city leaders and members of the community today and acknowledging his quick return was guided by criticisms in a small part over how he handled similar shootings in the past. CNN's Vanessa Yurkevich is in South Bend, Indiana for us. And Vanessa, you just spoke with the staff of the Buttigieg campaign. You have some breaking news. What are you learning? Yes, that's right. Hi, Jake. We are just learning that the mayor has now canceled all campaign-related events through Wednesday on the heels of this fatal police-involved shooting. That includes a speech he was scheduled to give tonight in New York. That includes two big fundraisers scheduled Tuesday and Wednesday in California. And that also includes uh, a policy rollout that he was scheduled to deliver as well. And as you mentioned, this comes on the heels of a police-involved shooting on the street just behind me, where there was the death of one man, a South Bend resident. The victim has been identified as Eric Jack Logan. And the mayor traveled here to South Bend yesterday afternoon, and he held a press conference at 10 p.m. last night. He said he wanted to make sure he spoke to the community early, something he says he's failed to do in the past. We've had prior cases of uh, use of force incidents and officer-involved shootings where uh, I hesitated, frankly, to uh, get in front of cameras because we didn't know very much and it was out of our hands. Um, but what uh, I learned, what I was told um, by people in the community is that it is important to open channels of communication to uh, try to be clear on where the city is, even if we don't find ourselves in the position to be able to say or do much right away. A candlelight vigil is scheduled for the victim this evening at 8 p.m. The mayor is not expected to be attending that. But, Jake, as of right now, the mayor will attend the Clyburn Fish Fry this weekend in South Carolina. That is the event where all 22 candidates for the Democratic nomination are, are scheduled to meet this weekend. Jake? All right, Vanessa Yurkevich in South Bend, Indiana. Thank you so much. Uh, let's chew over this with our... With our panel of experts, uh, Paul, I guess it's an opportunity for the mayor to show him doing his job, being a mayor. Right. Earlier in the broadcast, George talked about how it's useful to have experience. In South Bend, Indiana, smaller population than the University of Texas home football game, but 
Uh, an interesting, important, complicated city. And this is an example now. He'll have to show real leadership. I was struck in that interview, though, where he did something unimaginable in today's White House. He said, yeah, I got it wrong before. And now I've learned from my citizens, and I'm going to get it right this time. That's a candor that I find very appealing. South Bend, we should, uh, we should point out, is I think it's the fourth largest city in Indiana. It's, mm-hmm. not, it's not a metropolis. As, as, uh, as About 100,000 people. So 100,000 like people. Just a little fewer than a home game for the Longhorn. It's pretty small. Yeah, others running like Cory Booker have actually managed far bigger cities. Right. Uh, but I thought that it was interesting what Buttigieg said, like you mentioned, Paul, which is that, look, I'm learning from my mistakes. And this is a big opportunity for him, given the fact that criminal justice reform and police brutality have been a big issue in the primary. And this is a way for him to say, look, I'm going to tackle this head on and be as transparent as possible. Well, it's it's strange to have a presidential candidate who actually has a job. (laughs) Nixon in 68 had the advantage of being unemployed, Reagan in 76 and again in, in 80. Uh, no senator has a job that detains them in any serious way. <laughs> so th- this uh, he'll stand out as someone who uh, isn't entirely given over to uh, the next job. Meanwhile, there is this forum going on uh, with all these 2020 candidates today. And Sarah, um, uh, Vice President uh, Biden uh, spoke at this uh, forum. He's attacking President Trump in pretty sharp ways. Take a listen. We got to stop letting these guys use the divisions that exist in the country as a means, like charlatans always do, to divide the country. It's used by charlatans all the time. And we have a guy in the White House who's turned it into an art form. Calling the president a charlatan? Yeah, I mean, this is part of the Biden strategy to pretend like it's only he and Donald Trump who are running for president right now. And, you know, these other 20-something people who are out there need not be mentioned, need not be named. So we'll see if that works for him. I also thought, you know, you sort of got this very rosy view of Joe Biden saying, you know, we can work together. If you just elect me, bipartisanship will flourish and everything's going to be totally fine. He didn't really offer any specifics on how he plans to do that. We're obviously in a sharply partisan environment right now. And so that was one of the things that, that stuck out to me is, you know, it felt a little bit like he was kind of selling roses and candy with Without, without any concept of how he was going to get the country from where we are right now to this place that, that Joe Biden hopes to be. What do you make of, of the Biden candidacy? We have some conservatives come to this table sometimes and say they think that he's the only one that can definitely really give President Trump a run for his money. But you've been in this town for a while, as says Mr. Biden. I don't know. What do you think? I don't think he's, he's fun at this point. I think he's the eat your spinach candidate. It's good for you. <laughs> and my view is, it's very simple-minded, is that in primaries, when the people who are in politics, the minority who are involved at that point, are in it partly because they like it. It's fun. And I don't think he's fun. You don't think he's having fun out there? What do you think? I don't think he's having fun, but I don't think he's fun for other people. Oh, I see. He's having fun, but the the audience isn't. Well, he's also limiting his appearances. Um, His campaign has not made him that accessible to press. There's only a few speeches, big speeches that he's done, including the one today. Uh, They allow some access via pull reports to his fundraisers. But overall, he's been very limited in how much uh, they're exposing him. And to what Sarah said, he said that the way he would get Republicans to work with him is by shaming people like Mitch McConnell. And I'm not sure that that's going to work with McConnell. And part of the reason Donald Trump was fun, to your point, when he started running, was that he would stop at every microphone. He would, you know, comment on whatever the news of the day was. I mean, truly, whether it was, you know, an animal that was, shot at a zoo or whether it was like actual policy news. And so it was this sort of very freewheeling candidacy and whether you loved him or you hated him, I think people really felt like they got a sense of who this guy was and what he stood for. And we're getting, you know, a much more limited view of, of Biden, I feel like. And you've, you've criticized them, uh, the, 
the Biden campaign for doing that in the past, right? For 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 limiting how much yes. exposure we get to him. Yes, and I, I think they're probably overcorrecting. I think he's perhaps a little too freewheeling in his previous attempts <laughs> uh, running for the White House, and and so maybe now they're trying to rein him in a bit. But I think George makes a good point. He needs to have fun. He wants his voters to. At the same time, Democrats have really only one issue, one question. Are you the one who can deliver me from this president? Can you beat Trump? I, I believe that they'll take any position on, on, on the health care or, or, or crime or anything if they believe you can beat Trump. So I think that's what he's signaling today. I think it's vitally important that Poor People's Campaign, which focuses on people of color, the Democratic nomination will be chosen by people of color. Too many of these candidates are running for the pain in the neck, over-educated, over-caffeinated white liberals on Twitter. Mm. I suppose I'm one of them. But the real people who will pick the nominee in my party will be people of color, like at that Poor People campaign. Very important that Biden is there. And Biden said when asked about the campaigning in the Sun Belt, he said today he was going to beat Trump in Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Texas, and Florida. That's a tall order, especially South Carolina and Texas, I would say. <laughs> it won't happen. It won't, it won't happen. <laughs> Do you think that, that he, he could be... Uh, a strong candidate against uh, Trump if it comes down to it. He is the front runner, right? Yes, of course. I think almost all of them are strong candidates until they disqualify themselves by some wretched excess. So remi- reminder that George Will's new book is called The Conservative Sensibility. It's out now. It's a great book. Thanks so much for joining us, George. We appreciate it having Good. you here today. Breaking news. We have some brand new photos of the attack on an oil tanker as a senior Iranian official says the U.S. and Iran are headed toward a confrontation. Stay with us. Breaking news for you in our world lead now. New photos the U.S. government says backs up its claim Iran is responsible for the attack on two oil tankers in international water. This, as Iran announces, it is now stockpiling low-grade uranium, and in just 10 days it will pass the limit that had been allowed under the Iran nuclear deal. CNN's Barbara Starr is at the Pentagon for us right now. Barbara, what, what are officials saying these new photographs show? Well, Jake, the fact that we're even seeing them is extraordinary because these are declassified just a short time ago, high-resolution imagery. The Pentagon doesn't like to show how much they can really accomplish with imagery, how much they can see. But because there is so much public doubt about this, because there is so much public concern, they have really made an effort here to show these images, to show the world as much as they know at this point. Newly declassified images of what the Pentagon says was an Iranian attack on two oil tankers last week. One extraordinarily clear image taken by a U.S. Navy helicopter overhead shows an Iranian Revolutionary Guard boat moments after those on board removed an unexploded mine from one tanker, according to the Pentagon. More images of the leftover mine and a hole in the hull from additional blasts. The Pentagon acknowledged two things. They are not sure all the damage was caused by mines and the case against the Iranians still will have its doubters. We have not stepped Iran's uh, ambassador with a scary prediction today about a possible clash with the U.S. Unfortunately, we are heading towards a confrontation which is very serious for everybody in the region. In an interview with CNN's Christian Amanpour, the ambassador also claiming Iran isn't responsible for the attack that left two oil tankers damaged last week. I don't know about the strategy of the U.S. on this, but I am sure that this is a scenario that some people are very 
forcefully working on it, that they would drag the United States into a confrontation. President Trump's national security team now discussing sending more military force to the region. Uh, the United States is considering a full range of options. We briefed the president a couple of times. We'll continue to keep him updated. Uh, we are confident that we can take a set of actions that can restore deterrence, which is our mission set. A decision could be made soon that will send additional U.S. warships, fighter jets, and Patriot missile defenses. We obviously need to make contingency plans should the situation deteriorate. Iran's response to the escalating tension, it will bust through a limit in the nuclear deal on how much low-grade uranium it can have for non-weapons purposes. It is a matter of only hours and not even days. Iran hopes the threat will break Europe's will to go along with tough U.S. economic sanctions imposed after President Trump broke from the nuclear deal. It's a far cry from the 90% enrichment rate that you would need uh, for a bomb. But it is a very strong signal from Tehran that the deal could be put under some pressure. Look, the Pentagon knows there will always be doubters about whether Iran was really behind all of this. But there are other problems to look at when it comes to Iran's weapons. Right now, the Pentagon says Iranian uh, missiles are getting better, improved guidance, improved targeting, improved distance, much more able to target in the Middle East. Jake? All right, Barbara Stratt, the Pentagon, thanks so much. Joining me now, former CIA counterterrorism official Phil Mudd and Washington Post columnist Jason Rezaian, who was Tehran bureau chief for the Washington Post and, of course, imprisoned in Iran for 544 days on those trumped-up charges. Great to have you. Thanks for being here. Do these new photographs prove anything? What would you say if you were a European diplomat trying to figure out what to do here? Uh, two questions. Do they prove anything? Not to me. There, I'd have a hundred other intel questions. For example, how common are these boats out there? How confident are we? We know what's on that boat. For example, mines. I, don't, I think what you're seeing, though, from the Europeans isn't a question about intelligence. It's a question about trust. It's a question about reliability. As soon as they say, yeah, you're right, the Americans, they're on the hook to say, and now we'll get in the boat and determine what we're going to do with you. And it's in an age where the president's uh, uh, comments about Europe and NATO have not been positive. If I were the Europeans, I'd say, nice photos. I don't believe it yet. And, and this skepticism, to me, it feels like it's rooted in a few things. One, a real reluctance for there to be any sort of military confrontation. Two, the legacy of the war in Iraq. And three, as you say, and you're being polite about it, I mean, President Trump does not have the strongest track record when it comes to European allies and, frankly, when it comes to the truth. Not at all. And I think we have to also go back uh, to the, the nuclear deal, the JCPOA, which President Trump decided to pull out of about a year ago. Uh, by all indications, the deal was working for what it was uh, set up to do. And it's not as though these skirmishes are anything new. I mean, this is a incremental building up of tension that we've seen over the past year uh, and I, I think it's just going to continue. Do you think, Jason, that the Iranians or some Iranian-affiliated organization had anything to do with these I think it's, it's completely possible. Uh, but I think that there was a time not that long ago that if the United States came forward and said this was Iran, most of our allies in the world would jump on board with that. And that's not happening this time. And take a listen to Senator Tom Cotton uh, of Arkansas, how he thinks uh, the U.S. should respond uh, to Iran allegedly attacking these two oil tankers. These unprovoked attacks on commercial shipping warrant a retaliatory military strike. They warrant a retaliatory military strike. And Tom Cotton, uh, Senator Cotton, is very close with, uh, with President Trump. Uh, that's nuts. Let me give you a few technical reasons why. Number one, who are you going to line up to build a coalition if you want to have a military strike? Who's going to be with you? The French, the British, and others in Europe who are right now trying to determine 
whether even to side with us, uh, with us on sanctions. First, we don't have anybody with us except those superpowers like the United Arab Emirates and the Saudis. And the second is uh, something you learn time and time again in this game. If you're going to stage some sort of military action, what is the response going to be and what's your end game? If you don't want war and you conduct an act of war, then you better be ready to go down that path. I don't know where he thinks we're going to end up if we take a shot. The president is saying that all options are on the table, uh, including sending more more troops to the region. Well, I think that's probably what he'll do first. But ultimately, uh, the idea that we'd start lobbing uh, bombs at uh, nuclear sites or at Tehran or at the Persian Gulf, like Phil says, is absolutely nuts. And I think that there's a long way between uh, a couple of skirmishes uh, in the Gulf uh, regarding tankers that were non-lethal, that nobody died in these attacks, that we'd start attacking Iran in, in any kind of military campaigns. How trigger-happy do you think the Iranians are? Well, I think that they're looking at this situation. They've been stealing for this fight for a long time, uh, probably preparing for it for at least the past year since we pulled out of the deal, uh, and, and have various options uh, ready for them, including these asymmetrical things that we're already seeing in the Gulf. Is there any sort of United States military response that wouldn't lead to a huge war? I mean, obviously, Iran doesn't want to have an all-out war with the United States, but there might be more, and I'm not advocating for yeah, them, and yeah. I don't think they'd be good, but obviously people who think about these things think about more limited military engagement. Sure, there's one that would be on the table, and I, I suspect is already being discussed, is about how you ensure that, that ships that are going through the Gulf are protected not just by the United States, but by other players. For example, the Japanese, the Chinese, the Russians. The problem with these other players, Chinese and Russians in particular, is they don't trust the Americans either. So you can talk about things like securing oil shipping lanes, but you've got to have people sign up. And the people we want to sign up with big ships, they are looking at us saying, what are you guys going to do? When you, when you look at the picture, what does it tell you in terms of what the U.S. intelligence capabilities are in terms of getting this information? Because that's one of the reasons why uh, you, the Pentagon and others were reluctant to release any sort of high-grade photograph. The picture tells me more about public diplomacy than it does about intelligence. What you're trying to do is to prove to the world that what you're saying is accurate. My question would be something they never released. Do we have communications? In the intelligence world, communications, that is the Iranian Navy, for example, are far more sensitive than pictures. Do we have a residue from the bomb that tells us what kind of bomb, what kind of mine was used? I suspect there's a lot more intelligence that they have. This was released because it's a visual. Jason Rosian, Phil Mudd, thank you so much. Appreciate your expertise, both of you. Coming up, a distinction no child should have to receive. The youngest known baby separated at the border by the U.S. government, just four months old, where he is now. That's next. Internationally today, we're learning more about the youngest known child separated from his parents at the border, thanks to some remarkable reporting from The New York Times. Constantine Mutu was ripped from his parents at just four months old. He's now become the face of the traumatic and lasting effects of the Trump administration's zero-tolerance immigration policy, the one that led to thousands of migrant children being taken from their parents. Constantine Mutu was only four months old when he traveled from Romania to Mexico to the southern border of the United States. He rode most of the way in his parents' arms. But when Constantine crossed the border into Texas in February last year, the New York Times reports, he was separated from his parents and sent to a foster home in Michigan. Again, he was just four months old. Circumstances forced the mother back to Romania, while the father languished in U.S. custody without knowing what had happened to his loved ones. 
he was detained in an American immigration detention facility for four months, during which time he almost never had help with translations. He still, to this day, struggles with flashbacks and nightmares. During that time, Constantine's foster parents tried to document his growth and his crucial firsts to eventually share with his biological parents. I would always think it breaks my heart that his mom is missing this. And when Constantine was finally returned to his mother in Romania five months later, he no longer recognized her. He screamed, he bucked his body, and he, he reached back for his foster mother, who he'd become attached to. And so, in a way, that second separation is going to be as traumatic for him as the first one was. Constantine is the youngest known child to be taken from his family under President Trump's family separation policy. He's now back in Romania with his parents and four siblings. Constantine, you know, has acclimated to being back with his parents and is getting close with them again, but he still isn't walking and he isn't talking and he's almost uh, almost two years old. According to the New York Times, the family sold their home to make their initial trip to the U.S. And right now they're struggling to make ends meet. As a mother, I would rather die than have someone else raise my kid. Despite their ordeal, the Mutus are working hard to return to the United States someday in hopes of living a better life, all of them together. And our thanks to the New York Times. Coming up next, the loss of a cultural icon. And finally, from us in our Pop Culture Lead today, a tribute to the artist, actress, author, socialite, and fashion designer, Gloria Vanderbilt, who died today at the age of 95. Her son... CNN's Anderson Cooper saying his mother was, quote, an extraordinary woman who loved life and lived it on her own terms. She was 95 years old. But ask anyone close to her and they'd tell you she was the youngest person they knew, the coolest and most modern. She died this morning the way she wanted to at home, surrounded by family and friends. I spoke with my friend and colleague Anderson about his relationship with Vanderbilt in 2016, right after the two published a book they had written together about their lives. You know, I think everybody wants, would like to change, would often like to change the relationship with somebody in their life, and particularly with an aging parent or a parent with an adult child. And oftentimes you don't do it until it's too late. And so this is really, I hope, will encourage people to, to talk to their you know, aging parent and learn about their lives before, before they're gone. Our condolences go out to Anderson and his family today. May her memory be a blessing. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Thanks for watching. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.